Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. While your local public television station holds its fundraising drives, WealthTrack is focusing on new topics for our podcasts to help you improve your portfolios and finances. Three women entrepreneurs recently shared their inspiring journeys with me at the Women of Leadership Summit, hosted by the New York affiliate of ACG, the Association for Corporate Growth. In one way or another, we are all entrepreneurs, and we are creators of our own destinies. So our three panelists believe it, they live it, and they have taken that notion to a very high level. So prepare to be inspired motivated and energized by them. I've talked to them all prior to this panel, and they have wonderful stories to tell and a lot of great advice for the rest of us. Stephanie Sark is the most experienced entrepreneur in the group. She uh, launched an internet pioneer. It was called GoTo.com in the dot-com era, which invented the paid research business model that powers Google today. She took it public and eventually sold it to Yahoo. She also has extensive experience in retailing, uh, and that is where we find her today. She is the CEO and co-founder of One Atelier, which she started in 2014. One Atelier is a direct-to-consumer custom luxury brand where her first product allows you to design your own one-of-a-kind handbag and have them delivered to you within 21 days. She unleashes the creative power in each customer. Next is Sarah Kaus, who is the founder and CEO of Swell, which I'm sure a lot of you have heard about, which she launched in 2010. So she created a whole new category. It was the original fashion hydration accessory. Right there, decorative reusable steel water bottles. Swell topped $100 million in revenues within six years of the launch. She financed it with $30,000 of her own money, and she still owns 100% of the company. She is an accountant by training. And actually, everyone in this panel deserves incredible applause. But she uh, is an accountant by training. And uh, as you will find out, she was destined to be an entrepreneur with a mission, a small mission to help save the planet. Felicity Conrad, who's next to me, is also on a mission, in her case, to connect indigent and underserved people in need of legal advice and representation around the world with organizations like law firms and bar associations and law schools who are willing and able to provide these pro bono services. She co-founded Paladin in 2015, which created the software platform to connect all of these constituents and she is building a very broad and impressive client base. Felicity is a lawyer and was a litigator with a major law firm in New York before founding Paladin. So what I wanted to know and when I first called them all is what led these individuals who all had careers at prestigious firms, they were on, you know, they had a 
designate a career path, what led them to become entrepreneurs and take that personal risk? So I'm going to start with Stephanie. Stephanie Sarko, why start one atelier? You want know, atelier is really the culmination. I think it's going to be the culmination. We'll see of a journey that started, you know, a long time ago. Uh, I think it's just how I'm wired to be an entrepreneur, or maybe otherwise said, not to need to report to anybody. Um, but I actually started my career at Goldman Sachs in M&A um, as an analyst, and I loved everything about the job. You know, the Creon Hotel, the supersonic jet. I hated my work. Um, I just realized I belonged on the other side <laughs> of the table. <laughs> um, but very quickly, I knew that I was an operator and that I belonged on the other side of the table. And so my career path since then has um, always been moving towards entrepreneurship and about 20 years ago landed squarely on entrepreneurship. So the reason we're here today is I, um, after we had taken GoToPublic and then we had sold it, um, I really took someone's advice, which was to cool my jets and go get a life. And so I came back to New York. We had been in L.A. at the time. And I spent the next 10 years thinking this was the time I was going to get married and have children. And at some point I said, forget getting married. Let's just have children. And that was even hard. And so I started just dabbling with startups again because, hey, I can start a company. I can't have a kid, but I can start a company. Um, where's that fertility company? Should have been around a long time ago. <laughs> so... Um, you know, I was looking around, I'm from HBS, and there are a lot of these gal pals doing extraordinary work, you know, two women with guilt and Birchbox and Rent the Runway, and I'm like, wait a minute, I've been in fashion, I've led a tech company, I can do that, and I actually love fashion. So um, I started dabbling in an idea which was this notion that at a certain point in our lives we need to get beyond, um, we, we just get beyond the need to carry a branded luxury bag, and we just want to carry something that's beautiful, that's well-made, that's comfortable, and that is a true expression of ourselves. And I couldn't find that bag. You know, long ago, had I packed away the Birkins, to, which I had bought at one point in my life because I needed to show the world that I had arrived or really maybe prove to myself that I had arrived, and um, was really just looking for something that was an authentic product. And it didn't really exist. So we started dabbling with it. I found two co-founders who I'd actually worked with in a past life at Coach. Um, so here we are today where we really have got our running legs on. And for me, there's two things that are super important about this um, business. The first is that it brings great joy to women. Um, I watched, so I did have a child. She's a five-year-old now. She was born about the same time as launching the company. Um, so it's been an incredibly um, fulfilling five years. And I watched the joy she gets when she makes something with her own hands, when she builds, when she creates that sense of mastery. And you lose that as you get older, just because we're busy and moments of joy get farther and farther apart. And we're trying to you know, just kind of make it all happen, pass the baton. But when these women open a bag that they've co-created and they realize that it's not only a beautiful piece because we do it all on 36th Street in an extraordinary atelier, um, but they had a hand in designing it, I've seen tears simply because this notion of creation and ownership is such a powerful one in a world where we've been robbed of that from, you know, the broader fashion industry. So first and foremost, that's what's important to me. Um, but secondly, I think we're really building something important. We're building a business that um, we see as a platform that will be moving across multiple categories. Handbags is just the first of what we see a long run through footwear and accessories and all sorts of other um, industries. And I love building. And I think at the end of the day, I was really missing the ability to bring people together to do great things. Um, I don't know that I want to be as large as GoTo or eventually Google was, 
but I, I love the process and I think we're building something important that has an impact on everybody every day. Oh, it's so it's inspiring. And also we're going to get into the details of actually how you know she launched and uh, how she was running the business. And we'll do that with each of our panelists. But that was a terrific beginning. And so Sarah Kaus, why did you launch Swell? Um, thank you for that really nice um, introduction, Consuela. I think for me, it really came down to purpose. It really was the thinking about how can I personally have an impact on the plastics issue? And much like Stephanie, I created Swell because I was thinking about myself as the customer. You know, I, I went to University of Colorado um, at Boulder for undergrad, and it was completely fine for me to carry a water bottle that looked like a camping accessory. <laughs> and in, in Boulder, you can get away with that. Um, I, I later in my life went to HBS and had a career and, and did have the fancy handbag. And very sheepishly, I would take my camping accessory water bottle out and drink from it and then sneak it back under the table because I couldn't find a product that I was confident enough that I thought I could put proudly on the table in front of me. But there was a, an environmentalist inside of me that really could not use the single-use plastic bottles, but there wasn't a product on the market at the time. So as much as I didn't think that I had the confidence or the skill set really to go start my own company, I really saw myself as the customer. And I thought if I created something that was more beautiful, something that was... Um, a hydration fashion accessory, which quite honestly is a term I made up so we could get into Bloomingdale's. Um, it worked. It worked. It, it didn't work for the first two years because Bloomingdale's told me, well, we don't carry water bottles. And I said, oh, this isn't a water bottle. This is a fashion accessory that happens to carry hydration. Um, um, and if you've been to Bloomingdale's recently, we have a, really a flagship store up, um, up in their housewares department um, today. And they like to take credit for it. And I like to remind them that it took a couple of years to convince them. But I really thought if I created something that looked better, something that worked harder. You know, swell bottles keep things hot and cold. Um, there's no condensation. It's not going to drip inside your beautiful luxury handbag. Um, you know, it's something that is going to, um, to keep things hot and keep things cold. I did a lot of research and I realized that most people aren't buying bottles of water because they think the water inside the bottle is more pure. In fact, quite the contrary. It really was um, a convenience factor. You're hot, you're on the go. Um, you're tired and you want coffee. You just didn't necessarily have that vessel to plan appropriately from home. So I thought, number one, it needs to look better. Number two, it needs to work harder. Um, and I thought sort of the, the, the single most important piece of starting the company was purpose. You know, I was reading a lot about um, the water crisis at the time. And I thought that here in, you know, this, this world that we live in, we have the luxury and the ability to drink out of the tap water. And in so many places in the world, you know, at the time that I started Swell almost, you know, 10 years ago now, um, a billion people on the planet didn't have access to clean drinking water. And that affected women and girls primarily. And, you know, girls would drop out of school and help their moms fetch water. You know, women wouldn't have vocations outside of the home because their full-time job was fetching water. And I thought, if there was a way for me to make this elegant product that convinced people, that converted people to use, and also educated them about the water crisis. Um, I've been partners with um, with UNICEF for many, many years. But from the beginning, that was sort of the, the mission and the passion piece to kind of tell the whole story. Um, I thought if I could wrap all of that up and really be a message in a bottle, that there, there would be plenty of additional customers like me. Now, I, I, you mentioned I didn't raise money. My, my first product was um, 
uh, we're doing this 10-year challenge on social media. Everyone's seen it. So yesterday, we went back and started pulling the, the pictures of what the product looked like 10 years ago. Um, we only had it in blue, and it was exactly this size. We have over you know 200 different colors and patterns now. We do designer collaborations. We have all different form factors and products. But 10 years ago, it was this product in blue. Um, but I only had 3,000 of them, and they were all in my apartment. And <laughs> um, we have a pretty awesome team now, and I can't take credit for all of the good work that they do. But really, for me, why I started is I couldn't get the idea out of my head, and I was going to be really mad at myself if I didn't just take um, take the risk and start the company because I thought it was such a genius idea. Someone else was going to do it, and I would always kick myself. Wow. Felicity Conrad, why did you start Paladin? Um, yeah, so first of all, thank you so much for having me here today. It's very inspiring to be up here with, with all of you and in this room with you. Uh, it's also really exciting to see so many lawyers in the audience. <laughs> uh, so um, I, I absolutely resonate with the idea of, um, of regret um, if you don't go for it. That was something that really hung over my head. Um, but I was absolutely not a born entrepreneur. Um, there was no bone in my body that thought that I was one day going to start a business. I actually famously remember my, telling my ex-boyfriend in college that that was the last thing I would ever do as a career. So here we are. <laughs> but um, for me, it really did stem also from the, the mission. Uh, we live in a very interesting time right now, and um, there's a lot happening. And one of the things that's been really cool is to see uh, a rise in uh, mission-driven companies and uh, people who are living really mission-aligned lives. And one of the things that I was really excited about as a, as a lawyer when I was practicing uh, actually just down the street uh, in New York, I was a litigator, but I had taken on a pro bono case. And my pro bono case was a, uh, a, an asylum seeker, a man and his family who had fled uh, Colombia, a, a narco-terrorist organization that actually tried to kill him. Uh, and so he fled young children. Uh, within Colombia, they found him. And they, he then uh, fled to America. And um, for whatever reason, he, he couldn't afford a lawyer. A lot of people can't. And so his case file came across my desk as a first-year associate as a potential pro bono client. So I, I took on his case. I went to immigration court. I learned everything I could about how on earth to try to win asylum for this man and was actually able to do it. And that was one of the coolest experiences I had as a lawyer and this kind of moment where I thought it was amazing that I could be a private sector lawyer and do that kind of work and have that kind of impact on somebody's life. Uh, one of the things, though, that I thought was missing is we started to kind of look at the numbers, and I got really excited about how do I get every single lawyer to do pro bono work, and pro bono has been kind of exploding more generally, given things like family separation, DACA. Um, but one of the missing pieces was tech. Um, a lot of Amazing people were spending their time on emails, spreadsheets, trying to get these people lawyers and trying to manage the work being done. And that was kind of when I stepped back and took myself out of it. I thought that that was something that somebody needed to do. Uh, man, somebody really needs to build some infrastructure for this overlooked area. And I guess maybe a few weeks later, I looked in the mirror and I thought, hey, maybe that cursed person could be me. Why not? 
what else am I doing with the next five, 10, however many years? Um, so it was really kind of that once that idea was in my mind, it became very insidious and I couldn't <laughs> escape from it. And I knew I'd regret if I didn't go for it. So that was sort of the, it came from a very kind of natural experience. And um, hopefully one of the things that um, I can get across today is also that um, lawyers can also be a part of these fun stories and innovation. And there's so much work to be done in that space too. So you're, you're not, you're not, no cop-outs here. <laughs> that, that's a revelation <laughs> for, some, for some lawyers at any rate. Um, it's, it's amazing in listening to these stories that the, a common theme is a sense of purpose and vision, wanting to make an impact, wanting to touch people individually. And so, you know, Stephanie, how important was that in the founding of One Atelier? Is that, is, is that mission, I mean, and the vision, how important is that? It was definitely the starting point. Um, so even from many, many years ago, I've had this interest in people and what makes them unique and different. And, um, you know, when everywhere I've traveled a lot, wherever I've lived, you watch the different people walking through. And the beauty of individuality is something that has just always struck me. And I think that was what was so different for me about fashion and hadn't been part of and having been part of it for a long time is that we were being stripped of individuality and not celebrating what made each of us unique. And so that was really the starting premise was this notion of um, building a brand, building a business that really celebrated what made each of us unique um, and giving women a platform, albeit small, but one they carry every day and which is an important part of their lives as a canvas for that expression. Um, and that's really where it started and ended. I, I literally pulled myself out of retirement to do this um, because that was such an important calling. And to be honest, I also couldn't find the perfect bag. And so the two of them were able to come together, and that became my platform. Yeah. So, And I know, and Sarah and Felicity, you just spoke very eloquently about how important a sense of mission is to you. So let me ask Stephanie, I'm, I'm going to get to kind of the brass tacks of how you actually started business, which is the financing aspect of it. So Stephanie, where did you get your financing, and, and how, and, and what's the current funding situation? So we've... Um, worked with a very, very small network of angels uh, and, I guess, seed investors. Um, we were about $3 million in. It's been myself, a, another gentleman from Harvard Business School who has a fund that invests in consumer startups and a family member of one of the other founders. Um, and through that, we've managed to go a very long ways. So um, for different reasons, I own about 80% of the business, but um, um, we really uh, – we got here for – and, and we – we were there for two reasons. The first is because, to be honest, I've been in venture-backed businesses, and it's a lot to manage. And I just, at this point in my life, didn't want to have that to handle in the short run, and we could afford, between the three of us, to postpone that. But to also be frank, we knew that we were doing something that a lot of venture capitalists were going to think twice about. It was... Um, we don't carry a lot of inventory, and we'll get more into this, but the beauty of our business model is we make everything to order. We have no forecasting error because we don't have to forecast, and we also pull our raw materials in real time. So it's all really on demand. Um, but it's still, we have a factory on 36th Street. You know, we're still building little shops in Nordstrom. So there is some capital. It's not the classic digital enterprise such as others I've been involved in. And... Um, 
I guess the last point is in luxury, brand is an important piece. And folks were wondering how you're going to build a brand. And we saw it because we've been in it. The industry has completely changed. Brand is not that important anymore. Women are moving to what I call post-brand, sort of post-modern. And customization was beginning to have um, some real swell. And so we all saw that there was going to be an opportunity. Um, and I feel very comfortable today to say that we are absolutely at the right place at the right time, even though it took us four years to be here. Um, and now I feel like we're in a fantastic place to go tell a story because we really did all the hard work. We built the infrastructure, both the digital infrastructure, the product infrastructure, and the um, factory infrastructure to get to a place where I feel very comfortable going to investors and getting a square deal. But I, you know, the last few years I was always asking ourselves, we've scaled enough if we're there, and I just didn't feel like it was going to be um, an easy sell. But you do, you do now. You feel so like we're, we're rolling out actually as of this quarter for some um, conventional Series A. Yeah. Oh, isn't that fantastic? So, Sarah, you, you mentioned that you self-funded Swell. Uh, was that a deliberate choice, or was it basically the best option available for you at that time? You know, at the time, it was a deliberate choice. It has been a deliberate choice right. um, up, in t up until now. And you know, I'm always open to conversations when people are, you know, interested in the business now because we're more high profile. And you know, not to say at some point I wouldn't bring on a partner if they had something to add, you know, outside of capital. Um, but in the early days, I mean, the lucky thing is I started my career as a CPA. So in the early days, I was really focused on unit economics. So I didn't necessarily need to get funding to grow the business. I just needed to sell my inventory to buy more inventory. And that might have been me thinking very small, but I had to build a category. So I, I was a little nervous that if I had investors, I would have projections and I would have to hit those projections. And I really wanted to build a luxury hydration accessory. I wanted to be in the best stores in the world, and it took me a while to convince those stores. Mm -hmm. I also had the luxury then of turning down opportunities that weren't right for the brand. So um, I've sort of famously turned down a, a large mass market um, retailer for about four years until I thought we were ready. And then when I thought that Swell brand was ready, I actually launched a, a diffusion line called Sip by Swell, which then hit every single target in America simultaneously at the same time because I felt the brand was ready. And I was afraid if I had an investor that was aligned with me financially but didn't really get where I was going with the brand, I wouldn't have the luxury of time to do the hard work of building the brand. And it sort of came back to the mission and vision piece um, because I didn't have you know, tons of, of venture money to spend, I really needed every customer to be my foot soldiers out there telling the story of the brand. And so because we were doing something so important to save the world from the plastics issue and to bring clean water to people, I wanted people to tell that story organically and that was going to take time. I mean, even to, to today, we haven't really spent any material money in marketing. It's all been organic. And I didn't want to quickly say, Swell sold out and now um, they have you know, such a big marketing budget that we've lost that sort of organic touch of the company. So not to say I, we wouldn't do that and we wouldn't have, you know, a major budget in the future for marketing and we wouldn't have a partner. I think I just needed the, the time to build the brand in the way that I wanted to. I also, I think I had some of the same issue that maybe Stephanie had starting out. I just didn't know it was worth the time to try to convince somebody that a $35 water bottle was going to sell before I even made the market. You know, sustainability wasn't such a thing um, 10 years ago as it is now. So I almost think the world is sort of more ready for it number one, because I created a category, but number two, the, the the world is sort of ready for the category that I created. So I think it was just very specific to the moment. Now, that being said, if I was going to start another company, would I do it differently? Possibly, but I'm also a different person now because I have the experience of running Swell. 
Yeah. And Felicity, you know, you have investors. Mark Cuban was one of them, is one, or is still, still one of them. Yes, I'm not sure. Still, still um, and it wasn't through Shark Tank. No. So, so um, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> no. Mark, um, if so you're listening, we love Shark Tank. So, how did you obtain your funding? Uh, so, uh, as a first-time entrepreneur and um, a subject matter expert, I was a lawyer. I had no idea how to raise money for a tech company. Uh, and as a software company in particular, uh, there's a lot of research and development, um, years of work with engineers that uh, goes into that before you can really sell um, our product, which is a, a pro bono management software. So we definitely needed some capital up front. And that was a, a huge learning experience for me. And if you're familiar with <laughs> some of the venture statistics uh, around female funding of tech companies, they're, they're pretty dire. Uh, on average, 2% of venture dollars go to female-founded companies. Uh, and that doesn't seem to be getting better. So that's pretty outrageous. And it becomes a bit of a, a numbers game for uh, at least most female founders that I know. Uh, in terms of the experience of having investors, though, I would say that I've actually found them to be our greatest advocates. We are a specific type of company, very mission-driven. And so when we come in through the door and we pitch them a legal pro bono platform, it's a very polarizing thing. If, if they understand the mission, they understand what we're trying to do. I found them to be incredible advocates and people that I can um, kind of bounce ideas off of, people who've made incredible instructions for us. I actually had a video call yesterday with um, all of our investors on the call, and it's an incredible community that, that we've built. So I, I think for us, it's been a really positive relationship. But certainly finding those individuals, um, you do have to tap into networks. You have to be very um, perseverant, uh, understand that rejection is a, really a part of the process. Uh, I had an executive coach actually for a while who got me to play a rejection game where every day I would have to try to get rejected five times. And if I wasn't getting rejected five times, I was not asking for big enough things. Uh, and so I think that's something that was really helpful for me to get over and really helped us build, ask folks like Mark Cuban to invest. He might have said no, but he said yes. And it's been fantastic for the company. And it's a subscription, basically. To ex explain the business model for, for Paladin. Yeah. So it's pro bono, but you need funds to continue the business. Exactly. To, yeah. yeah. So our product is a software product. It's used by corporate in-house departments, their legal teams. They have incredible pro bono programs. Uh, last week, we launched our law firm version of the product. So it's now in use by major multinational law firms, law schools, and bar associations. And they use our software to engage their lawyers in pro bono work and connect them with cases that might be a really good fit for them. Track the work that they're doing, capture data uh, around impact stories, the stories of the work that's being done by lawyers um, right now is absolutely incredible. And, and we live in a world of lawyer jokes where people <laughs> Um, don't appreciate the incredible work that's being done. So really creating some systems to streamline, 
how people, how immigrants, how domestic violence survivors, nonprofits can get connected to a pro bono lawyer and um, track that work throughout the life cycle. So law firms and, and corporations are, they do pay a subscription for the software, but of course it's um, kind of, that's to support the, the free model for helping pro bono clients. So running a business, and, and Stephanie, uh, you know, you are the only one in the panel that had had experience running a business uh, prior to this. But uh, it, again, you, and you mentioned that you, so it, it explain like how challenging, you know, that has been is to create a business from scratch because, uh, anyway, just explain how that's been for one atelier. I think for, for me, the fun part is at the beginning. I mean, at GoTo, and I've had subsequent startups between GoTo and, and this one, uh, one in China, in fact, and by the time GoTo got big enough to be a real meaningful corporation, you know, I took off and went to Europe to start us in London and, and across the continent because I, we, I got back to being into the startup roots. So that, you know, as a premise is just where I'm most comfortable and where I'm happiest. Um, but that said, it is a lot of work. Um, I think the most important thing that I have learned as I have built a couple of different businesses was two things. One is to hire the right people, but that doesn't just mean that they're good at what they do, it means that I can work with them well. Because I'm a particular temperament and personality and you know, it's just not worth trying to make oil and water work. Um, and I've had a numerous lessons where it's been the right talent, but the wrong person for me. And since I'm the CEO and the founder, they're the one who has to go. Um, but I learned it the hard way and, try, and trying to make things work. And someone finally said to me, you know, you just need to hire people that you can work with. Not that I'm so difficult, but I have certain expectations. I operate in a certain way. You know, I'm sending Slack at 3 in the morning. I don't expect you to answer them, but don't be surprised if you wake up at 6 in the morning and you're going to have a power full of Slack. Um, so that was really the most important thing because that has – every day I wake up and I feel blessed. It is a joy to walk into my office and my – really a factory and my daughter continues to ask me and why did you start a company when you had me and I haven't got the answer to that for, except that life just has its own way of working out um, but the reason is because I get to go in and see this incredible group of people who don't just have amazing talent but have integrity and we really are a family there's about 20 of us now and um, and I know that together we can pull this together now, that said, the other big important piece of it, and I just came off of one of these yesterday, is I have learned to become laser-focused on what has to get done in the next six months because it is so easy to get caught up in all the things that you can be. It's sort of like you with your first 3,000 bottles. Um, you know, we, we see the future, and it's huge, but then I have to just distill it down to the three things we're going to get done between now and March. Um, and the next few things are getting done between April and June. So my co-founder and I were out most of yesterday really refining that for 2019. And again, I learned that trick even at GoTo because it was so overwhelming. I, I can't even tell you how overwhelming it was at GoTo. Um, as we were launching and then the board wanted to go public after the first year. And we just had to sit back and say, okay, today here's, you know, put on your pad three things you're going to get done. And just don't let all the other noise come in at you. So those for me are the survival tactics. Um, and the rest generally falls into place. And Sarah, you deliberately told us that you avoided that extra pressure at any rate of the investors, uh, saying you've got to you know, deliver so-and-so or whatever. But from a CPA to manufacturing uh, this phenomenal fashion accessory, 
Uh, you know, how did you do it? I mean, you, you mentioned that there was research. I mean, clearly, I didn't realize that uh, that the bottles were kind of multi-purpose, that I could go cold and hot. Um, you've, you know, you stuck with the same size. I mean, how did you do all that? <laughs> it was really silly. Um, no, honestly, a lot of it, I, I didn't know, I didn't know really any of it. And I think that's, that was the beauty of starting out. I mean, I look back now and I think, God, you know, how did this happen? Um, but really it was, I, I was willing to ask advice. I was willing to take people out to lunch and ask people, I mean, people love to, to be experts at whatever they do. So I had lots of coffee meetings, lots of lunch meetings, lots of drinks, and just say, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling with this and that. And in the early days, I have to say, especially with, with my, my HBS friends, I had a really hard time sort of admitting that I needed help or admitting that I that I didn't know what I was doing or if I wasn't sort of perfect. Because I had a great career. I was a vice president of a public company. I was, you know, flying around and doing things. And then now I'm working out of my apartment doing this little thing, right? And so I had a really hard time not being like perfect every time I met with them, but really just admitting like these are the things that are on fire right now. These are the things that I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing about and can you help me? And as soon as I sort of dropped the barrier and let everybody sort of see the chaos, people kind of came in and wanted to help me get to the next the next point. And you know, I laughed today, like I um when I was just looking at these 10-year pictures, one of the 10-year pictures was a really good friend of mine from business school who was nice enough to be a model for me, like went to Central Park and was like pretending to use her bottle. I and mean, she's she's a very senior woman in business right now, like like top top ten, you know, Fortune ten company, um, and would be super embarrassed to know that we still have her, you know, modeling pictures. But I was honest and said, listen, I don't have a budget. You're super cute. Will you just come be in my catalog? You know, and so it literally went from that to, can you help me find a factory? Can you help me figure out, you know, how how to import something? Can you help me like with the contract? You know, it was literally just here's what I know, like here's what I think I know, and then this is this big area that I don't. Know. And looking back, I think that was sort of the beauty because if I knew all the stuff that I didn't know, I probably wouldn't have had the confidence to get started. Um, but you know, because because I didn't have any big customers, I didn't have to worry about a lot of stuff. And then we sort of made it up as we went along. Um, I, I certainly wish I could go back now and sort of tell my younger self, you know, get those better employees in from the beginning. You know, get those people that are going to grow and, and flex with you over time. Because um, we, I think the the challenge of of growing so much so fast is that. You know, we had a scrappy ragtag group of, of employees. Some of them are still with us, and some we outgrew. Like some were completely fine on a Tuesday afternoon, and by Wednesday morning we would come in, and they were just underwater because they didn't have the skill set to grow. And I just thought, well, if I um, if I have enough pizza parties or work on culture enough or just sit down with them and try to explain enough, but I could because in the early days I did everyone's jobs. So as we grew, I just sort of thought everyone could come with me on this journey. And I think what the, the challenge was is just growing so quick and having the right people at the right time. Like every great employee that I have now, the only thing I say to them is, where were you six months ago? You know, I wish you were here when I really needed you, but it took me that long to figure out I had outgrown someone or really needed someone into a position or had someone in a job that had to be split in half and had to do it that way. So I wish I could go back and tell myself that. I just, I didn't know what I didn't know, um, which honestly, I think is a blessing because it gave me the confidence to kind of just jump and do this thing. But I think it was also sort of um, a bit of magic that it, it all worked out too. Felicity, asking for help, being you know shameless about asking for help. I mean, you're running a tech firm, you're a litigator, so you did get tech help, and it's your co-founder, right? So just to explain you know how you've been running this business and how you got it up and you know started and in a, in a tech world that you really weren't an expert in at all. Yes. Uh, so I, I very much 
echo the um, thank God for my uh, initial ignorance. It um, was psychologically very helpful because kind of life uncovers, oh, this week I found out, oh, there's this giant area that I had no idea existed. Um, that was very much my understanding of, of tech at the time. I knew it could be really handy. I knew it can scale things. It can scale getting your food to you from the internet into your office really quickly. I figured it could probably scale access to justice and that would be something I could figure out maybe. Um, but that of course was a, a gross, gross assumption. But uh, early on, I, I hung out at places where I could meet a lot of engineers. I talked to every tech CEO I know, asked them out for coffee, peppered them with questions, put together a business plan, got it torn apart by 10 different people, rebuilt it, um, and eventually kind of started to know enough where I um, could start to assess people in terms of working with me. My co-founder actually came to me and I think she thought, you need help, but I want, I'm the right person to help you. And she actually put together a PowerPoint slide presentation on why I should bring her on as my co-founder um, and all of the ways that I needed her. And she was absolutely right. <laughs> um, but on the, um, the, the tech side, I guess, um, one of the things, even as you bring on team members, we just brought on an amazing creative director, and I was upfront with him. I said, I have never ever um, managed a creative director before. I think you are, I'm hiring you because you are incredible and you're amazing at this. Can you help teach me how to be a fantastic manager for you so you can be as talented as you were in your last position? And having those kind of upfront conversations, which initially are maybe a little disempowering, actually take you, I think, to a really powerful place long term. You know, I'm, I'm hearing an approach here um, that is, uh, doesn't sound male to me <laughs> at all. Um, you know, there's to admit that you don't know something, and especially if you're running a company, and to actually ask a lot of different people for, for help. Um, is strikes me as something that women do, and am I don't want to be sexist here, but am I? You know, I mean, do, do you? Is, is that? You know, what difference has it made being a woman entrepreneur very versus a uh, a person who's not a woman? Do, do you feel that their your approach has been different? I guess a few things on that. One is. Um, I think it's so important, as these ladies are saying, to let your defenses down and just be who you are. And I think it is so powerful, as Felicity is saying, um, because the startup world, maybe another survival skill, but is constant failure or it's constant learning, however you look at it. And I was raised as a sort of fixed mind thinker. And so everything in my world, and you know, my parents did a great job, but it was just generational black and white, right and wrong, good and bad. So man, if you didn't win, you lost. And it was a really hard way to live. Um, and so I made a very concerted shift, partly at HBS because of the method of teaching there and just as a survival skill really, um, as I moved into startup land, <clears throat> to recognize that if you were gonna go try to change the world, 
that you were going to be breaking barriers and that we were inevitably going to make mistakes. So I think the ability to step back and say, it's okay, um, you know, I'm not going to let my ego be bruised if we make a mistake, I'm going to take the best of it, is perhaps a skill that's more easily embraced by women. You know, it's hard for me to say because I am still a single mom. And so um, just from observations, though, I found it um, so empowering to be able to do that. Sarah? You know, I would say for me, you know, being a woman in business, it's, it's really the only thing that I know. So I can't yeah. sort of speak mm -hmm. to what it means to be a woman and what it means to be male. But I mean, I would just sort of take a bit of a different approach in that um, I've been able to sort of use authentically everything that I have and who I am mm -hmm. and also sort of ride the coattails of this moment of women in entrepreneurship. I mean, I've been on all different kinds of um, panels and opportunities and magazine cover and crazy things have happened to me that never should have. And is it because I'm running a water bottle company that's that's kind of sexy and very strange and why? how did this work? Or is it because I, I'm a brown hair and I'm a woman? I don't know, yeah. but I, I'm going to use I'm going to use everything I've got. Right. right? And there's right. there's certainly have been, you know, men's clubs over the years. And so it doesn't make me feel guilty that I happen to be in a lot of really powerful groups of women entrepreneurs. But I also want to make sure that I'm also being a great mentor and friend to other women entrepreneurs, you know, so I feel like I've been really lucky and blessed along the way to have people make the time from me. Um, and I even like I've spoken at universities and I still get notes from from college students and I, I will always write them back. It might take me weeks, but I will um, because I feel that, you know, th there is a moment that's happening that I've, I've definitely benefited from. I, I just don't see sort of the, the negative side that that certainly may be there, but it might be just my optimistic outlook that I think, well, lucky me that I happen to be born at this moment when these things are happening and I happen to be here for it. But I don't sort of see what I'm missing. I only see, sort of see what I'm benefiting from. No. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I agree with that. And uh, one thing I think, so entrepreneurship, like many industries, has historically also been more male dominated. You have kind of the, the tech bro in a hoodie archetype out there. And so in addition to recent data that um, female founded companies actually perform better than male founded companies, and this is starting to be some uh, a theme in uh, Central, uh, several venture capitalist portfolios. I think First Round Capital has taken a strong stance on this. Mm -hmm. I also think when you start a company, you start with a problem. You're trying to solve a problem. And a lot of the problems that, that people try to solve are, are kind of informed by their life experience, by your desire for uh, a certain type of product that, that looks and feels like this. So a lot of the problems that have yet to be solved a lot of the untapped markets in terms of opportunity, I think are problems experienced by women, minorities, immigrants, and those are huge potential businesses waiting to be started that have almost no competition right now. So I see a lot of opportunity in those areas. I, one example I think is a plus size clothing line um, is now making an enormous amount of money, but they originally went out for, for raising, I think, a seed round or a series A got turned away because nobody believed it was a market. It is a huge market. So I'm really excited about those sorts of companies, uh, untapped markets in the next 10 or 20 years. I, I think it's going to be a great time to be a female entrepreneur. I want to get your questions as well. So uh, if you, anyone want, wishes to come up to either one of the microphones, please do. Let's go for it. Hi. Hi. 
Um, I just had a question for Sarah and then for Felicity and Stephanie to the extent this applies to you. But uh, Sarah, I think your husband is in your management team or helped, was instrumental in helping start your business. And as someone who's, oops, super close to their husband, it's something I've thought a lot about because we're super complimentary. And I just wanted to ask if that's kind of a net positive overall for your marriage and your business. Or, and uh, <laughs> so that would be good to know. And then to the extent, Stephanie and Felicity, you have had either um, a significant other or a sister or kind of close friend help how that has impacted um, your relationships. That is a great question. Um, I, uh, I like to say that the, the subtitle of my memoir someday will be um, How Not to Work with Your Spouse. <laughs> um, <laughs> My husband's not here, so I can say that. Um, he also likes to call himself the wind beneath my wings, so it all sort of depends on the day that you catch me. Um, you know, I, um, I, had pr- I had already started Swell um, at the time that I met him, but we were very small. Um, so I thought, you know, oh, I'm starting this big company, and I'm, this, I'm doing this and that. And he kind of was smiling like, yeah, we'll see where this goes. And um, I never really thought I would be working with him full time. And when we were dating and then married, and we're actually new parents, I, we have a six-month-old at home. Um, so it's, it's a lot to balance. But I really kidnapped him as a as a bit of a free consultant. You know, he came in working a half day on Tuesdays when the website would crash, and he'd say, "Can you have me come in and help before this breaks?" Because the way that I and I don't know if this is just me being a woman, but I would go home and vent at the end of the night, like this happened and this happened and this happened, and then I would go to bed, and then he would stay up all night trying to fix whatever it was that I was telling him about. So he said, "Can I be more proactive and come in and help you?" And one thing led to another, and he wound up being our COO for a time until I had a professional COO. Um, now he's officially our president. He, um, he works on a little bit of this and that and everything else. I would say the positive is that I really trust him. He is my partner. He understands what I'm dealing with. He knows my challenges. Um, he, he really gets me. And sometimes it can be really lonely to be a CEO and to be an entrepreneur and to really have someone that understands all the bits and pieces that you're dealing with. I really trust him that there's any meeting that I need, I can, I can send him and he's really going to represent me and, um, and come back with the real story. Um, I think the challenge is how do you have separation from work and, and life? How do you not take it home with you? Um, I already am a bit of a workaholic. Um, I'm all, all working early and late and in between. And it's super hard for me to say, let's take this evening off because he's a bit of a workaholic too. And so if one of us will say, let's not talk about work, let's, you know, it's Sunday afternoon, let's not do something. It usually is about a 10-minute break, and then one of the other one will bring up something about the office. So I feel it's it's really hard to have that safe place to hide or have those kind of rules around balance when you're really working with your spouse. But for me, I mean, I love the man, obviously, um, but it, it, I don't know that I would have necessarily set things up like that. It just organically sort of happened um, and seems to be working, but I don't necessarily recommend it for everybody. I don't know if you would say the same. Uh, do either one of you want to chime in on family, friends, whatever, involved in, intimately in any of your businesses, and if, if you have experience with that? I mean, two things come to mind. First, um, I am blessed with an incredible co-founder. Um, uh, I call my daytime husband, and then he goes home to his husband. So we have a great relationship. Um, but he and I uh, are really the yin and yang, and it has worked perfectly. So I tend to be a little bit um, intense and... Uh, on overdrive all the time and 
pretty much any email I send out when I'm about to respond to something, I run through him, and he just has a diplomatic way. He's very high profile in the fashion industry um, that has worked extremely well for me, and he's brought enormous value to the company. Um, but the other thought I would share, and I'm going to be curious to see where you are in a year or two, is my daughter has been really the rock. Um, so long gone are the days where I work 100 hours a week because it's just not possible, um, especially as a single mom. And so it really forced me to work very differently. So um, my schedule is pretty much drop her at 8.30. She goes to Avenue, so she's right by my office. Come to work. I'm at work by 9. I leave at 4.30 to be there at 5 so that we can play and have dinner, and she's asleep by about 7, and then I take an hour to just kind of call family or what have you, and then I fire back up at eight, around 8 or 8.30 to work for several more hours into the night. Um, but and, and the weekends I don't work. I mean, that's not really true, right, because my mind is always working and my phone is always working uh, and there are things happening, but I don't sit down and say, okay, you do that or go to the babysitter and I'm going to sit here and work because really that is my time with her and we don't have a nanny during the weekends. So that forced an enormous discipline on a person who you know, similarly really worked 24-7 for most of my life up to that point. Um, but I think it's actually been more effective, and I've also never been happier. So it was the right way of forcing some work balance on and, my and, life, at least. And we just have a couple of minutes left. Did you want to add anything? or? Uh, no, other than my co-founder and I call each other uh, work wife, so, and you have a daytime <laughs> husband. Is that, That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> and I also just want to mention something that Stephanie had told me over the phone, is that uh, in being an entrepreneur, that she, you felt that for your, your own life, balance and that it, that it was the one way to really basically control your personal and your professional time and that that, that, that was one of the a huge bonus. Last question, there are a number of us out there who uh, would like to start their own businesses, might have a dream or an idea. What, you know, what's your one piece of advice, um, and I'll start with you Felicity, to someone mm -hmm. who wants to start their own business? Um, I really do think the first step is the most important. Uh, I, I really wanted to have a plan and I wanted to know exactly what to do before deciding to start. And a lot of really smart people spent a lot of time trying to dissuade me from that idea. And I am so happy I followed their advice. So if it's something that you're interested in, I mean, you don't have to quit your job, or, but, but take a step, and you never know where that will lead. I would say the same. I would say start small. You know, it doesn't have to be um, analysis paralysis. It doesn't have to be a major business plan. But even if you're just starting with one customer set or, you know, one product or one something, if it's something that you think that you want to do, it probably is something to try. Um, if, if it's something that, you know, you've been really thinking about a product or service, and I don't know that you have to do, you know, the entire thing to really get proof of concept um, or to get it out of your head if it's a go, no go. So start small. Stephanie. Just really another spin on that, which is this notion I was sharing a moment ago, which is just getting comfortable with the fact that there will be failure, failures, but really it's about setting up small experiments um, and learning from those. And um, I would share a book that was transformational for me in that process, which is called Little Bets by Peter Sims, where he talks about lots of amazing stories of people who are really high profile that you'll be surprised started by just taking these little steps, little experiments, being comfortable with the fact that if that didn't work, that's okay, but I know a lot more for the next time. Um, and for those of you who have children, a similar book is Rosie Revere Engineer, and it sends the same message, um, which I think is very powerful for little girls, because my daughter already was, you know, I gotta be perfect, I gotta be perfect, and I'm like, oh my lord, we're here already. Um, so really teaching her that little steps, little successes, little failures that turn into um, success the next time will be the right foundation to eventually be doing the kinds of things that we're doing. 
Thank you three so much. What an, it was inspiring and energizing, so thanks so much.